Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. much maligned minority throughout American history, atheists have been cast as a threat to the nation's moral fabric, barred from holding public office, and branded as irreligious misfits in a nation chosen by God. Yet, village atheists, as these godless freethinkers came to be known by the close of the 19th century, were also hailed for their gutsy descent from stultifying pieties and proposing a necessary secularist challenge to a majoritarian entanglement of church and state. In Village Atheists, How America's Unbelievers Made Their Way in a Godly Nation, Professor Lee Eric Schmidt explores the complex cultural terrain that unbelievers have long had to navigate in their fight to secure equal rights and liberties in American public life. Examining the multi-layered world of social exclusion, legal jeopardy, yet also civic acceptance in which American atheists and secularists lived, Schmidt shows how it was only in the middle of decades of the 20th century the non-believers attained a measure of legal vindication. Yet, even then, they have often found themselves marginalized on the edges of a God-trusting, Bible-believing nation. Professor Lee Eric Schmidt is the Edward C. Mallinckrodt Distinguished University Professor in the Humanities at Washington University in St. Louis, and he joined the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics in 2011. He earned his undergraduate degree in history and religious studies from the University of California, Riverside, in 1983, and his PhD in religion from Princeton in 1987. He has appeared on a number of NPR programs and other radio shows to discuss his many books, and he also comments on current issues in American religion and culture for such notable media outlets as The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, London Times, Boston Globe, and a number of other titles you probably would recognize. He's here with me today to talk about his latest book. Hi, my name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and you're listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Professor Lee Eric Schmidt, who's agreed to talk with us about his new book, Village Atheists, How America's Unbelievers Made Their Way in a Godly Nation. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. I am happy to be here with you. Maybe first start telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Well, let's see. I mean, I think that uh, one comes to uh, a field of study often because one has had really good teachers uh, in that area, and I, that was certainly true for me. I, I credit a number of teachers and mentors for getting me very interested in um, the religious history of the United States, uh, among them Edwin Scott Gowstead and John Wilson and Al Rabiteau. All of them uh, were inspiring teachers and mentors for me. Um, but behind that, I mean, why would one become interested in religious history? Why would one be drawn to what they were teaching? Uh, I grew up in a liberal Protestant world and where, where progressive causes and Christianity seemed to go hand in hand. We cared a lot about the civil rights movement, farm workers movement, 
Um, we thought a lot about uh, world hunger and what the churches might do um, for um, addressing the, that 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 issue. So, so there was a real link in my mind growing up between political progressivism and Christian commitment. And then when I went off to college the, and then graduate school, the world seemed to be shifting on, on that point. It was the rise of the religious right, um, rise of figures like Jerry Falwell, the moral majority, and the, the liberal Protestantism I knew from my youth seemed to be under siege from this, this resurgent evangelical movement. And I think that was a particularly important time for religion in the nation's history. And I'm sure that underlined um, my interest in the movement, just the fact that things seem to be changing so rapidly around me, especially for the Protestantism I grew up with. I mean, in some ways, a shorthand would be for this is that I grew up in a, in a Methodist world, uh, much like Hillary Clinton's. I mean, a kind of she grew up in the Methodist church and had a kind of progressive sense of, of Christianity. And uh, the world was turning toward a kind of Protestantism, a Methodism like Jeff, Ses Jeff Sessions or something like that. So it's just that kind of just that change between the association of Protestantism um, with liberal progressivism to a conservative political posture. And I think that that shaped me a lot in, in, in terms of why I was drawn to this field. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So let's turn now to the book. How, tell us how you came to write this book in particular. Even in graduate school, I was interested in all those people who weren't religious that You'd see the statistics on early America, and you know you think of the early history of of, uh, of America as just dominated by by Christianity. But the statistics really weren't there for for that perception. There were so many people who were outside the churches, so many people who were unchurched, and it always intrigued me that the possibility of writing an irreligious history of the American people to go with the, the religious history of the American people that, that most of the folks in my field um, were dedicated to writing. So even back then, I thought this would be uh, a worthwhile project. And then, uh, you know, I worked on various things over the years. Uh, and then I guess with uh, in, the, in the new millennium here, we've had such a rise of, of the religious nuns, those people who are disaffiliated from religious groups entirely, people who say they don't have any interest in, in identifying with a formal religious organization. So the rise of that group and the, and the growth of the new atheists and this kind of resurgent secularist movement, I think that the last 10 or 15 years then catalyzed those early interests of mine. And I, I finally committed myself to, to looking more closely at the, the history of atheism and the history of unbelief in American culture. Okay. 
So if we turn to the book now, um, you start by giving us a brief outline of the long history of the hostility towards atheists going as far back as the 1600s, um, as well as its place in American history. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, in the, in the early uh, history, atheism was something that you used to disparage your opponents. It wasn't so much in the 1600s and 1700s that there were a lot of flesh and blood atheists, but it was a label that was very effective in theological polemics. So if you came across a deist, that is someone who believed that God wasn't involved in a day-to-day way in creation, that God was this abstracted architect Um, someone who set the world in motion but really wasn't tinkering with it anymore. Um, If you came across a deist, you could label the deist an atheist, and that was a good way of saying, you know, down this path uh, lies uh, ruin, uh, moral ruin and all kinds of social and political dangers. So atheist and atheism, these were terms you could use to disparage your opponents. And the same could be, you know, you could use it to disparage a Unitarian, someone who didn't believe in the Trinity anymore. Well, effectively, if you denied the divinity of Christ, you must be an atheist. Or um, So it had that kind of polemical uh, use. Um, then in the, in the 19th century, uh, you get a sense that you actually start having, at least in in the United States, I mean, there were certainly some atheists before, um, but you start getting some people who are willing to embrace the label and you can start really talking about about them as a a kind of lived, (laughs) in a lived way and and get out of the more polemical um, posture that dominates the scene in the, you know, for the first couple of centuries in North America. Okay. So let's talk about the term, the village atheist. Uh, you write that in the late 19th century, village, the village atheist would emerge as a recognizable American character, but that there were other various terms used for unbelievers throughout the years as well. So tell us about this. Right. I latched onto this idea of the village atheist, which is a term that is first used in around 1807-1808 and then gets popularized toward the end of the 19th century. Um, I latched onto it because I thought it was suggestive of the kind of everyday embedded quality of of unbelief. I mean, these are are folks, um, you know, on the ground, grassroots, antagonists of their Christian neighbors. And I really want, I like this notion of, of, of for that. Um, but there were all kinds of other ways of thinking about unbelievers in the 19th century, um, both labels that were applied from the outside, but also then internally to this, to this group. I mean, people called themselves free thinkers or liberals or just unbelievers or moral philanthropists or agnostics, um, were secularists. Uh, so there develops over the course of the 19th century a pretty rich vocabulary 
for these dissenters to use to describe their alienation from Christianity. Um, but I latched onto the village atheist because I thought it had a certain um, cultural resonance, um, and and it allowed me to emphasize the quotidian lived qualities of secularism uh, in the United States. I, I thought it, it, it spoke to that. So, um, so it's it's one term among many, um, and. It has a, a kind of literary history to it. And when it's first used, it's used in the context of this poet, George Crabbe, a British poet. And, and then it's picked up on in, um, in some other literary works, um, including Sinclair Lewis and Edgar Lee Masters, um, Spoon River Anthology. So it, has, it had a kind of uh, literary cachet to it almost. Um, and so I was able to kind of pick up on that history, pick up on that, uh, on the ways in which it had become a, a kind of culturally significant term for the unbeliever. And, uh, but, you know, I, I'm using it as a shorthand there. Um, and there are all kinds of other labels. I mean, there's a there's some nuance in the labels. I mean, liberal is kind of seen as the most capacious. Maybe makes you open to religious alliances. Maybe you have something in common with Unitarians or spiritualists if you just call yourself a liberal. Um, you know, atheist is the is the much more aggressive term. Free thinker is seen as a kind of somewhat more moderate label too. So there there's some nuance in these labels. Um, but I think at the end of the day, they really speak to the, the same set of propositions and they're kind of interchangeable that sometimes a person would call himself or herself a free thinker. And then other times they'd boldly claim to be an atheist. And other times they might decide that secularist is the better description. So there's, there's, a, there's a, lot of, a lot of possibilities um, for naming uh, in the 19th century, well beyond just the idea of the village atheist. Okay, great. So you organize your book around the stories of four individuals who are um, a notable village atheists. So the first of these, uh, whom you, or actually I think he dubbed himself a secular pilgrim, that's Samuel Porter Putnam. Uh, and he was also a historian of the secularist movement. So tell us about him. Yeah, it, it, it was a puzzle for me how to organize the book. And I like character-driven historical work. So I did, I did end up you know, focusing on, the, on these four characters. And I, I suppose I started with uh, Samuel Putnam because he does embody a quintessential pattern in American religious and irreligious history. Namely, he moves from a, 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 an evangelical Calvinist uh, tradition, grows up in that world, fathers a congregational minister, himself has um, a conversion experience. He's, he's in the evangelical Calvinist world becomes a congregational minister himself. And then he moves along this, what is a familiar 
spectrum in, in New England intellectual history and religious history moves out of the congregational world of evangelical Calvinism, ends up in Unitarianism, and then ultimately Unitarianism doesn't hold him, and he moves on um, to being a, an overt atheist, materialist, and, and secularist. So that pattern, I mean, to be able to see in one person, kind of here's evangelical Calvinism, here's the movement into a liberal Christianity, a Unitarianism, and then ultimately this movement um, into professed atheism. It, he did embody what is a really prominent version of the secular pilgrimage. Um, and the fact that he dubbed himself the secular pilgrim um, because he itinerated lecturing everywhere um, for the secular cause, but also because his religious experience embodied a secular pilgrimage. He was no longer um, a pilgrim like John Bunyan's pilgrim um, in Pilgrim's Progress, but rather he embodied a new kind of secular pilgrim. And I thought his story and the way he talked about his religious experience, his journey, let me talk about this paradigmatic uh, journey into unbelief. There are other journeys, of course, but this is one that if you're looking at the history of theology in the United States or the, just the, the broader history of Protestant in the United States, that particular journey from evangelical Calvinism to atheism would be a paradigmatic one. And he just, he just he exemplified it. He also is interesting because, as you say, he becomes a historian of the movement um, and, I mean, really a, a dedicated historian of the movement, a massive history of secularism in the United States that comes out in the 1890s toward the end of his life. And um, because of his labors for that work, we're actually in a much better position to understand um, the everyday world of um, of so many 19th century secularists because Putnam was an indefatigable chronicler of their lives and their, their stories. Hmm. Amazing. Okay. So the next chapter is about a cartoonist. So a very different kind of character here. Uh, that's Watson Hessen. And uh, he's from the latter half of the 19th century. And he eventually became a very prominent artist and cartoonist for the skeptical publication the truth seeker. And as you say, and I'll quote you here, uh, he massively enlarged visual satire as a medium and mnemonic of American free thought. So um, he became impressively popular and influential in the free thinking, eventually in the free thinking movement, but uh, he never did have an easy go of it, did he? No, most of these figures didn't have a particularly easy go of it, I would say. Heston, um, yeah, didn't have a lot of resources to draw on. Um, so financially, he had a particularly hard go of it. Um, you know, he's in a small uh, town in uh, southwestern Missouri, regularly at odds with all of his neighbors because of his irreligious beliefs and because he's just genuinely a cantankerous, confrontational person. Um so yeah, he struggles all along. Um, he also, you know, has health issues and just, it, you know, it's just hard to make a go of it as a, as a free thinking cartoonist or as a, you know, a, an artist. He's also painting portraits and things like that. He's just not making much of a living. So he struggles. Um, and 
but he is incredibly successful um, in this medium of satirizing Christianity um, and creating a kind of visual repertory for American secularism. He, um, so he doesn't make much money at it. He doesn't really stabilize his life particularly through, through the success of his artwork. But he, uh, he does have a really lasting impact on um, the way unbelievers visualize their secularism. His cartoons just really have an enduring impact. I mean, they're still being reprinted. The Truth Seeker as a publication has recently been revived as a, as a small free-thinking publication, and they regularly feature reprints of Heston's cartoons. They're still sort of like the go-to images. If you want to, want to imagine secularism, if you want to imagine what free-thinkers are committed to, Heston's images still seem to just leap leap to the front um, for, for um, even for contemporary free thinkers and secularists. But um, yeah, so he, he published uh, hundreds of cartoons, uh, cover cartoons for the Truth Seeker from the mid 1880s up to uh, 1900. He also published hundreds of cartoons on the back page of the Truth Seeker. Those were all satires of, of the Bible, particular biblical stories that he found laughable and that free thinkers routinely found laughable. So he was satirizing the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and he was satirizing, um, you know, everything from Methodist revival meetings to uh, antiquated scientific ideas that uh, he saw um, evangelical Protestants uh, promoting or you know, dragging their feet on Darwinian science or, or what have you. So he, he was, um, you know, it's a rough hewn style, but he was very, very effective. And, and he, fellow free thinkers, m- many of them just loved his in your face quality that, that he just was pulling no punches and that he was taking the fight to the Christians and um, they loved the, the kind of muscular, um, hyper-masculine world he seemed to embody when that kind of his rough-and-tumble approach to, to satire. There were a minority of freethinkers, um, a sizable minority, but who really thought this was a terrible strategy. If you really wanted to win converts to your side, you didn't just beat them up with satire. Um, that the, this whole cartooning of religion um, was far too aggressive. It wasn't the right posture for seculars to take. It was embarrassingly aggressive. And, you know, that you should, you should really take a softer approach to trying to bring people along toward enlightenment, toward secular enlightenment. And so they were quite critical uh, of, of Heston's prominence in the movement and, you know, you know, wished the truth seeker would stop publishing his cartoons and stop making them such a prominent part of the secularist cause. But his admirers in free thinking ranks um, almost always uh, carried the day and, uh, you know, kept his cartoons circulating and, um, and um, continued to make him a kind of celebrated artist for secularism. So, but the debate is there and it, the debate lingers. That very kind of debate, you know, is still still alive in in the 21st century among secularists i mean whether to take this 
aggressive, no hold barred uh, approach um, to religion or whether to be kind of constructively engaged in the humanistic dialogue uh, with believers and not lead with insult, not leave, lead with satire. So, um, you know, it's a kind of um, Bill Maher uh, approach, that side is less than <laughs> Watson Heston approach, or you can take a humanistic chaplain like Greg Epstein or Bart Campolo, and it's much more constructive. Let's not insult people. Let's not widen this divide. Let's try to work um, in a kind of dialogic way um, with, you know, across our differences, our, our, our um, different um, worldviews. So that, that is the, that, that tension was there in the 19th century. Heston really crystallized that tension for secularists. And it's, you know, it's one that's quite familiar still today for, for secularists. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the contemporary context, actually, because I was thinking about the same thing as you were talking about it. That's very much a lively debate today, um, both with uh, the religious topics, but as well as politics. That's the debate on the left. Do we, how aggressively do we want to uh, ridicule or confront our opponents? And uh, it's interesting to see how this is just kind of a um, a perennial question when it comes to the best way to deal with those who disagree with you. So right, absolutely. Um, and I, I, I do think there, and there's so much at stake. Um, you yeah. know, when it comes, especially to cartoons. I mean, we've seen that with the, uh, in you know, with all the cartoon wars um, in the over the last decade or so over images of the prophet Muhammad and, you know, whether you, whether you want to rally to the cartoonist um, side and that kind of the importance of visual satire and the freedom of expression, or whether you think that, um, you know, secularists should um, have a more conciliatory approach um, to, to religious people. And so it's, it's something that is, uh, is a really remains a, a life and death issue that the way people end up thinking about, um, the place of cartoons and satire in this relationship between believers and unbelievers. So yeah, it's, it's, it's deeply, um, it's deeply relevant still. And, you know, you can look at the Heston story and all the debates about Heston, you can see just clear echoes of the kinds of debates we've been having over the last decade about cartoons. Right. Okay. So let's look now to chapter three, the blasphemer. This is Charles B. Reynolds. Uh, and he was indicted in New Jersey for blasphemy, which I don't think is a crime any longer. Um, and you say that the full complexity of his story is often overshadowed by this singular event. And you strive to put this into a broader context of an important debate about the legal rights and liberties of the irreligious in America. So let's talk about that. Sure. Reynolds' story is, uh, it's again, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful crystallization of much bigger issues. I mean, he is, uh, his case is something of a cause celeb in, in free thinking circles in, in the middle of mid 1880s. Um, because he, he is this evangelist for secularism and he, um, he, he starts out as a Seventh-day Adventist evangelist and, 
loses his faith along the way and remakes himself quite literally as an evangelist for secularism. I mean, as a Seventh-day Adventist preacher, he had these tent revival meetings. He did summer, you know, revivals and these tent meetings. And he thinks that that's the way you convert people. That's the way you bring people over to your side. So he raises money to get a tent for free thinking revivals, essentially. I mean, he's, he's preaching the, the good news of secularism to people in these tent meetings. And he shows up in Booton, New Jersey and, um, in uh, 1885, and he, uh, he has one of these tent meetings. And the thing about an open-air tent, it's not like if you're in a, you know, in a lecture hall or whatever and people can come and choose to come or people can choose to stay away. There's something about this. It's just open air. People gather around and hear it. People, the, you know, there are ruffians who come to hear it. The pious are kind of feel assaulted by it. So the next thing you know, he the tent is mobbed um, and the tent is destroyed and Reynolds feels endangered for his life and makes a hasty retreat. And um, instead of uh, the, the, the town authorities deciding that somehow Reynolds is, is the victim of all of this, that, that, that those who mobbed him might be be responsible for public unrest. They decide that he's the one responsible because he's 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 uh, preaching and lecturing about these uh, these irreligious uh, opinions, and they see him then as the one who has been the threat to public order and public peace, and they charge him with with blasphemy. And um, this then you know becomes almost immediately something that's far bigger than these little towns in New Jersey and Booton. And then when the case is going to Morristown, New Jersey, I mean, it becomes something that the national news media is covering because it, it's, it's fascinating the time whether blasphemy as a charge has any traction anymore. I mean, there aren't that many blasphemy cases after the civil war. There's certainly some, um, you could still be charged with blasphemy after the civil war. I mean, Reynolds is not a complete outlier, but, um, it's still pretty unusual. And then you have the fact that the, the most important and famous infidel of the day, Robert Ingersoll, immediately steps into the fray and says he's going to fit, defend Reynolds against the charge of blasphemy. Um, so it, it becomes this, you know, a kind of media hoopla over this blasphemy trial. So, so it's really an interesting episode on its own terms. Um, Eventually, he is found guilty and given a, a, a what is a you know a small fine, um, and then sent on his way. And if anything, he gains by the notoriety of having been tried and convicted as a blasphemer because it sells well on the free thinking lecture circuit that you're this blasphemer who ran into trouble and Ingersoll defended you, and so so he he's not. You know, he's not in, 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 in thrown in prison. His career is not severely damaged. He does leave the East Coast and move to the West Coast and decide that, that Oregon and Washington are freer climbs and a better place for the secularist cause. So he goes out to the, the West Coast. But the whole episode becomes, um, for me, an opportunity to think about, um, you know, how much 
freedom did the irreligious have? I mean, how did, how did, how did irreligious freedom work um, for people? What were the limits? What were the, the, the flashpoints? Um, and how much toleration was there? In some ways, you know, you look at the whole story and you look at his whole career and you think, well, okay, he actually enjoyed a fair bit of toleration. He is mobbed in New Jersey. He is put on trial. That's clearly, you know, some pretty severe limits on his civil liberties to have those things happen. But you look at the fact that he lectures hundreds of times all over the country and 99.9% of the time he does so without any clear, visible threat or conflict. I mean, you know, sometimes he's preached against from a local pulpit. People grumble about him. There's there's conflict in communities goes into, but nothing like a mob on a regular basis. Usually people put up with him and put up with his lectures, put up with his tent, or, you know, the tent gets destroyed. So after that, they're just putting up with his lectures again, not with the tent preaching and all of that. But so there is a kind of level of tolerance and forbearance around the expression of these free thinking ideas that kind of is the bigger picture behind the episode that gets all the attention. Still, there are enough instances of violence being directed at these free thinking lectures, at these secularist lectures, that you'd have to say, um, you know, irreligious freedom is, remains highly problematic in the late 19th century, and that people often find ways of silencing these lectures. I'm there are enough instances where they're arrested for public disturbance or they're seen, they're charged with blasphemy and, you know, or things like that, that there is, there is a chilling effect potentially on these lectures, but that's still not the larger picture because they're traipsing all over the country and getting away with it most of the time. So there, there's there's quite a bit of li- of liberty um, for uh, their expression of these dissenting irreligious opinions. Um, so I try to look at that. I try to look at some of the other notorious episodes of the period and assess those. I mean, there's a, a particularly uh, egregious case of violence against a free thinker in in Texas, um, in which a, a group of men kidnap him and, 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 you know, horsewhip him and basically say, if you keep on talking up free thought and organizing these free thinkers and sin, you know, endangering people's souls, we'll kill you. Um, so there is a kind of vigilante violence in that case. Um, but again, you know, so that's severe. I mean, that kind of lynch mob, intimidation of a free thinker, uh, a lecturer, someone who committed to the cause, that's, that, that's very, very serious. So there can be a high level of intimidation. Um, so I try to look at this kind of, the, you know, in a kind of balanced sort of sense from this. I mean, how common is that intimidation? How much forbearance? How much toleration is there? Um, you know, what, what makes toleration possible in some instances where, you know, what, what kind of planning goes into this that makes kind of some kind of reconciliation in these communities possible where people decide it's okay if this, these free thinking lectures show up. Um, and then in what other 
what other places does everything just fall apart and become so fractious and even violent? So I, I try to look at that in a, in a full-orbed way um, rather than to kind of taking Reynolds' trial as emblematic of just how persecuted um, these lecturers were. Um, it's it's a it's a, a bigger, more complicated picture, and that's what I, I try to get at through that case. Okay. All right. And that kind of leads into our next chapter as well, which is another kind of contentious case. And that's the very interesting, almost salacious story of Elmina Drake Slanker. Uh, She's known for her notorious atheism and her shocking candor about marriage, sexuality, and the body, which inspired authorities to call her not only blasphemous, but obscene, shameful, and immoral. So I find Slanker to be a bit of an unusual picture of seeming contradictions. On the one hand, she embraced crude biological terminology, stuff we find a little crude and on the edge today still even. Um, And then she also entertained speculation about some pretty kinky sex acts. And yet on the other hand, she advised young marrieds to practice abstinence and reserve sex for procreation only. And she also uh, championed extremely progressive ideas about women's roles extending beyond the home. And yet for herself, it seems that her own domesticity is what she's most proud of, or at least what she talks about a lot. So um, please tell us about this interesting woman and how she fits into the broader picture of atheism in the 19th century. Sure. Uh, Slinker is just a fascinating, contradictory figure, uh, uh, as you suggest. Um, She is one of the earliest figures to just come out as an atheist. I mean, she does this before the Civil War as a very young woman. Um, Partly she's coming to the defense of this uh, women's rights activist, uh, Ernestine Rose, who is being attacked um, for her atheism and, um, and for her advocacy of women's rights. And there's just an incredible vitriol that's poured out against Ernestine Rose. And as a young woman, um, Slinker comes to Rose's defense and, you know, comes out as an atheist and writes, writes in to, to one of the major free thinking papers that is often defending Rose. And she writes in saying that she's a woman atheist um, as well. And so then once you're out as an atheist, um, like Slinker is um, by the 1850s, how do you defend that? Because everyone is going to say, you know, this is morally degrading. You're shameless. You're whorish. Um, you know, you must have incredibly corrupt home life. And so, so there's on the one hand, what Slinker starts doing is she starts wanting to show that free thinkers, atheists, have just as good, indeed, even better home lives than the religious. So she writes some novels in which free-thinking families are the ones that are the models of moral virtue and domestic order, and in which the Christian characters are the ones that have these um, morally degraded lives or hypocritical fathers who are cheating on their spouses or abusive to their 
children. And so she writes those kind of novels where she flips the script, basically. So the degraded ones aren't the atheists and the free thinkers, the ones who are really upholding these middle class values of domesticity or these values of kind of refined domesticity are free thinkers and atheists. So, so she does this show and she kind of presents herself as the mother of atheism or the mother of liberalism. And, and so she wants to hold up those kinds of values. So that's one way to do it. On the other hand, she doesn't really just want to uphold traditional values or the, you know, these kind of, uh, norms around women's and men's roles that would confine women to the home and kind of just, um, raising these virtuous children, raising virtuous sons to go out and, and, and you know, be good uh, citizens of the Republic. She doesn't want just that. So she wants to also then create, um, you know, images of independent women, um, images of um, relative equality between husbands and wives. And so she's kind of working that side as well. She believes that women should be free to pursue careers, um, education, um, professional lives in, in medicine or law or what have you. So, so she, she, um, you know, I think, I think she's basically in an impossible situation, you know, on the one hand to kind of retain some sort of credibility in, you know, the wider culture. She thinks she has to hew pretty closely to these domestic expectations. On the other hand, she really wants to work change in the world. So she's trying to advance these, um, these views about different norms of family life, different norms around marriage, different norms around sexuality. And so, so what you see is that there's, there's a lot of contradiction or a lot of tension. And I'm not sure how, she could have freed herself from that. I think you see some instances in her storytelling where you get a sense that she's endorsing these kind of more traditional expected roles, but then the character that really comes out on top in the story is the one who breaks free of it, who's able to speak her mind um, and live her life in ways that Slinker herself is not quite able to do. Um, And um, I mean, she's, stuck in a small town in Virginia. Um, she's a displaced Yankee and ex-Quaker stuck in Virginia, a small town. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of professional opportunities um, for her. Um, she's mostly, you know, tending the home fires and then running, you know, writing on the side and, and, and creating a network um, for free thinkers through her correspondence and things like that. But she's, she's not really in a good position um, to um, to really widen her own options considerably, yeah. So I mean, she's just uh, she is she's a really complex, fascinating figure, and you know, there's just things I think about her her story about these kind of radical marriage reformers that you know would surprise anyone today. I mean, she they decide that you know that what they want to do is break through these Victorian norms of censorship and just being unable to talk about sex and unable to talk about, you know, sex education or, you know, just educating the young about reproduction and things like that. So they, 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 they go to some extreme. I mean, they don't just using medical terms. I mean, she's happily using four little, four letter words that, um, 
you know, so, and she just uses them, um, and in, in her letters and things like that, because that to her is a way you break through the reticence. You break through these, these stifling norms around sexuality is you just be utterly blunt and plain spoken. And even her defenders don't understand why she's doing that. You know, I mean, it's just hard for them to defend once it's discovered that that's how she's talking. It's hard for other free thinkers to think, that's not somehow dangerous to the larger credibility of the movement. So there, there are many in her own circles, free thinking circles who don't want to defend her, um, frank sexual expressiveness. They really want to shy away from that. They just don't want that as part of their movement. Yeah, she's fascinating. It really is a fascinating story. And, uh, there again, we have the same kind of problem at the center of it is how aggressive do you posture yourself, you know, before you, uh, for all that you can achieve in doing that, uh, there's some cons that come with that as well. So, right, right. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, and then you see her, I mean, right. And then there's just this mix of things. I mean, sometimes you're right. She's not, you know, that there are real limits on the position she's willing to take. Um, you know, this isn't particularly sexually liberating, you know, at the end of the day, um, right. You know, there are all kinds of ways in which um, it comes back around to a fairly abstemious view of around marital sexual relations even. So it's, I mean, there's all kinds of things that kind of blowing the lid off. I mean, that she's doing in terms of her correspondence, her frankness, the way she wants to engage these issues. She wants to counsel people. She wants to help people. Um, and you know, she thinks there's just almost no way to talk about that, um, in the culture, but at the end of the day, she kind of comes back around to this, this sense of moral purity and abstemiousness, um, that, um, you know, she's, she's just hemmed in by the, by, by those kinds of expectations that are still there that she, she is not interested in transcending or, or working beyond. Right. So weaving throughout these narratives, there's another character, and that's Anthony Comstock. Um, And he's actually famous for creating the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice and lobbying Congress to pass uh, the so-called Comstock Law, which is primarily about the censorship of materials deemed obscene or immoral in some way. And uh, when I was looking into him, I actually found that George Bernard Shaw made a comment about him um, in making a comment about the United States in general. He said, Comstockery is the world's standing joke at the expense of the United States. So I think uh, Comstock is a bit of a character in this story as well. So could you say a few things about him? Right. No, Comstock is a very important figure uh, in the, you know, in the background uh, of the book. Um, he is the most notorious and, and the most powerful moral reformer of the day. Um, and he really does see free thought, that this kind of irreligious thinking, and sexual libertinism and the breakdown of morality is those things just go hand in hand. They're in bed together. So free thinkers are necessarily kind of aiders and abettors of obscenity. Um, so he, he's very happy to go after them together. And if he has a harder time sometimes um, 
you know, working the angle that he could suppress their heresy or suppress their opinion, their free thinking opinion, or suppress them as blasphemers. But he gets a lot more traction in the notion that he could suppress um, those who are guilty of peddling um, obscenities. So whether, um, you know, in literature or, um, you know, in their, in their newspaper publications, uh, so he goes after the big free-thinking publisher, D.M. Bennett, publisher of The Truth Seeker for Obscenity. Um, and it looks like, you know, okay, he's talking about some issues around marriage and sexuality, but what Comstock really wants to suppress, sure, he wants to suppress some of the stuff that he, he associates with free love, but he really wants to get rid of Bennett because – He's he's uh, he's so irreligious. He's so um, frankly um, critical of uh, Christianity um, and and Protestantism. So so Comstock goes after what he would see as this combined force of free thinkers and obscenity peddlers, um, and that so he's he's after them. That's what gets um, Slinker into so much trouble. I mean, the, the wedge there for Comstock and his agents when they decide to arrest her in her little Snowville, Virginia town is um, they've been monitoring what she has to say about marriage and sexuality, what she's been talking about in her correspondence on those issues and the kinds of um, publications that deal with those issues. Um, and so that's the opening. And it's clear that they're delighted to get her on charges of obscenity, and they actually have – it's a more effective charge at that point than, than getting her on charges of atheism. And, uh, but it's, it's great. I mean she's a notorious atheist. She's an open atheist, and she's flaunting that, and she's, she's happy to teach children about her atheism and her unbelief. She's kind of like the Sunday school teacher of children on for free thinkers too. So they're delighted to be able to go after her on obscenity grounds and also seemingly maybe curtail her ability to, to um, be such a prolific writer and correspondent on, uh, on defining issues for free thinkers. So, so yeah, this is, uh, Comstock's crucial in all of this, um, in, uh, giving a little more teeth to the, uh, attack on, on free thinkers. So if you go back to the Reynolds on blasphemy, you can say, okay, blasphemy is, is, cr- is crumbling as, as a, strategy for getting at free thinkers. It's not going away entirely. It's clearly still there. But what takes its place is the charge of obscenity. And there are a good number of free thinkers um, in the period who are really drummed out of business on charges of obscenity. And their lives are made much more difficult um, because they're able to press obscenity charges against them. And uh, I mean, there are, I mean, there's a journalist named John Lant, free thinker, they get him on um, obscenity charges. And, you know, it's things like publishing a satire on Henry Ward Beecher's adultery or something like that. Well, that's a free thinking satire of Christian hypocrisy, but it's just salacious enough you might count it obscene. So it's that kind of um, 
that kind of strategy that Comstock ends up deploying, and it proves pretty effective in a good number of cases. And, um, you know, right into the first decade or so of the 20th century, maybe even the second decade of the 20th century. And then that begins to attenuate as a tool for going after free thinkers and, and atheists. So you conclude your book by looking at the place of, the, of atheism in America in the 20th and 21st century. Uh, so despite one sociologist's assertion in the 1950s that the village atheist had become an extinct oddity of the past, we know, of course, that atheism, agnosticism, and a whole host of related worldviews have only increased in popularity since then. So can you tell us something of the character of this drama up to today? Yeah, I mean, there is this this myth that kicks in during the Cold War in the 1950s that somehow the old-time freethinker is a thing of the past. The village atheist is gone, kind of just a, you know, maybe a nostalgic image. We used to have these contrarians on the scene, and now we're all kind of numbed into um, religious conformity. Sometimes there's that edge of, like, nostalgia. We used to have these really uh, rough uh, characters, these individualists who were willing to take on the orthodoxies of the day. Sometimes there's that. But most of the time, it's like, you know, there, there, there's not that kind of nostalgia. It's mostly like these are just free thinkers have now succumbed. The, the atheists are gone. And now we are in this moment in which obviously uh, the great common denominator for Americans is a belief in God and, and religious membership, whether you're a Protestant, a Catholic, or a Jew. And, you know, and this is just what's required in the era of the Cold War when you have godless communist opponents um, out there shaping um, everything. So, so yeah, that's, that's the story. That's the story that is, that is quite common. Um, it's also true, though, I mean, once you dig into this a little bit, there are any number of secularist activists in the Cold War. And in some ways, those secular activists are more successful than their forebears in the 19th century. They're especially successful because they're able actually to get legal traction um, at the Supreme Court level. And so you have, um, you know, secularist uh, like Vashti McCollum in um, Champaign-Urbana, who is going after religious programs in the public schools um, in the wake of World War II and eventually wins her case at the Supreme Court. And those religious programs in the public schools are declared unconstitutional. So that's a secularist victory in the public schools. That, that Those victories are then um, magnified in 1962 and 1963, in which you have secularist activists again um, fighting Bible reading and prayer in the public schools. Madeline Murray O'Hare is the most notorious activist involved in that. Um, but um, you have a number of others, and they really are a group of primarily secularist um, plaintiffs who are pressing this these causes and then finally winning because they have um, – uh, justices on the court, especially Hugo Black, who agree with their um, secularist critique of these kinds of religious programs in the public schools, and one uh, and and some a justice like Hugo Black really wants to 
press for a more thoroughgoing form of, of, of disestablishment. So, so there, there, that's the other side of the story. I mean, that, that kind of Cold War sense of religious conformity and everybody believing it's a nation under God and we have to kind of marshal ourselves under that those unifying themes being a nation under God and so forth. That's all, that's definitely true. But, but on the, the other side of this is this, this, the ways in which the secularist logic is actually carrying the day um, for the first time with the Supreme court and in constitutional law. So that's a huge development of the middle decades of the 20th century. Um, so you can no longer have religious tests for public office uh, at the state level. That's declared um, incompatible um, um, with the First Amendment, um, with constitutional principles. So there's a case in Maryland, Roy Torqueso, who's a humanist atheist who takes Maryland um, to court because they still have the requirement that if you're going to be a public official, you have to declare your belief in God. And this applies all the way down to notary publics and Torcasa wants to become a notary public. And so he just refuses to take that oath and it goes to court and event and Maryland defends itself and wins at the state level says perfectly fine. We can require a belief in God for notary publics or for our governor or whoever that's, that's fine. That's in the keeping with the traditions of the country and uh, goes to the Supreme court and, and he wins. So that he's another secularist activist and mid-century secularist activist who ends up being quite successful. So that's this other story that I, I tell um, toward the end is that cohort of secularist activists who win in legal circles. Then, of course, you know, you leap forward and you, you can see um, in the, it, here in the early 21st century that we've had um, a burst of secularist organizing again um, but also a real swing um, in terms of uh, the number of, of Americans who disclaim having any religious membership or any religious identity. Um, this group that sociologists call the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the, the folks who just don't um, want to belong, don't want to see themselves in religious terms. And so... Um, the time has become ripe again, I think, because of that, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, for an exploration of, of the history of secularism more broadly uh, in American culture as a way of thinking about our own current moment where we see now 25% or more of Americans being in this none category of just seeing themselves in more secular terms or certainly in disengaged from, from organized um, religion. So, so, uh, you know, that, that becomes part of the end point of the story too. the growth of the new atheists, um, in the wake of nine 11 and the kind of anti, uh, religious polemic that grows up, um, between 2001 and 2010. I mean, that's an important part of it. All of that is, I think, created the moment now where we have incredible energy, um, for secular studies, for the exploration of the implications of secularism and exploration of what are, what's the history behind this, this current moment where there's been such interest according to the new atheists, but also such interest among sociologists in exploring this demographic of religious nuns. So, yeah. So, so, you know, by the end of the book, I'm there. Um, 
in you know in this more in this more current moment. But the bridge to it, the bridge from the 19th century and the stories I tell, um, you know, the Reynolds and Putnam and and Sleeker and Heston, the bridge from their world um, to um, our world is this era of secularist activism in the court and all of and, and the traction those figures get, um, the Vashti McCollum, Madeline Murray O'Hare and others um, get. And I, I think that's, that's the kind of stepping stone I see. Um, it's those figures, I think, who deserve um, a lot of our attention if we want to get um, from the turn of the 20th century to the turn of the 21st century. Okay. Interesting. Well, Lee, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. It's been really enjoyable and interesting. Um, But before we go, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Oh, I'm working on a handful of things. I I do have a related project um, on the, on the history of uh, secularism and religious liberalism. I, I exploring I guess what you'd call a humanistic middle ground. Um, so all of these groups in Protestant circles in the 19th and 20th centuries who ceased to see themselves as liberal Protestants and come to see themselves as something beyond Protestant, whether they're a Unitarian a kind of liberal, you know, Unitarian or a humanistic Quaker, or they join the Ethical Culture Society, um, or they declare themselves to be religious humanists, um, or they just create some sort of independent fellowship. Um, I've, I've been exploring those um, groups, um, humanistic Christianity, humanistic Judaism, um, and seeing what kind of religious communities or borderline religious communities they call into being. Um, So I've been collecting a lot of material on that and exploring that. I mean, I guess what I would say is the relationship here between the village atheist and that project is is a lot of the emphasis in village atheists is on on these kind of lone figures in, in these communities. And there is a lot of isolation. There's a lot of isolation to being a free thinker in a lot of these communities in the 19th century. But there are also lots of instances where people manage to summon community um, out of their drift from Protestantism or their drift from Judaism. They summon new forms of community. And um, I'm intrigued by that. I'm intrigued by how workable that is, what it looks like, what people organize themselves around if they no longer organizing themselves around um, familiar Protestant symbols or familiar Jewish symbols. And so that, that's the kind of thing I'm exploring now. Um, and, uh, we'll see where it takes me. Great. Okay. Well, thanks again. Um, I really enjoyed having you on and maybe in the future we can have you back for another future book. Ah, uh, that would be great. I enjoyed this conversation too. Thanks so much, Carrie. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Professor Lee Eric Schmidt about his book, Village Atheists, How America's Unbelievers Made Their Way in a Godly Nation. 
If you enjoyed the stories in this book, you may also want to check out Lee's earlier publication, Heaven's Bride, The Unprintable Life of Ida C. Craddock, American Mystic, Scholar, Sexologist, Martyr, and Madwoman. It's available on Amazon along with his other book, and the audiobook is actually free right now on Audible if you sign up for their free trial. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. As a not-for-profit organization, all of the buzz that you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. I'm also looking for a co-host for this show. My goal is always to get out two interviews per month, but at certain times of the year, this is more challenging. So with a co-host, we'd be able to be more faithful to our publication schedule. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. Did you find this book fascinating? Let me know. I'd love to know what you think. Goodbye. Until my next conversation about new books in secularism. Thank you.